Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And this week, we are talking about the three sisters. Woo! That is corn, beans, yeah, and squash. it is. The trifecta. <laughs> the holy trinity yeah. of food. Yeah, it's a... It's a a dietary staple as well as a method of growing food. So we're going to talk about that. It's um, from Indigenous Americas. The the like cultural components we're going to be talking about today is specific to the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy, the nations that are part of that. Um, the Seneca specifically are part of the communities that I reference. If you're looking for like at our sources, that's what we've got going on. But this is a sort of general conversation about the functionality and cultural concepts around these three plants and how they're grown together. Yeah, right. That makes sense. I mean, I have I I have reached deep into my memories of being in grade six and learning <laughs> about this, so I have you know general idea of what the three sisters are um but obviously you know much more about this because you know you have an actual background in it (laughs) but just for context for our listeners you know um so like this is like a relatively unique way of growing things and like for so like in terms of how like europe and Eurasia sort of conceives of agriculture it's a very different process but it is a um, agricultural system that extends from the northeast of North America to um, the southwest of South America so it is like entire indigenous culture like I mean obviously there are like variations and like different species are used but the the system of the polyculture has been used all across the two continents um and I'll talk about like why that is specifically um and again like the only sort of cultural context that I'm I'm going to really specifically talk about is with the northeast um which is also the one that's most familiar to like Euro Western cultures from contact with the Iroquois. That makes sense. Okay. So do you want to give us, you know, just a crash course of how exactly these things grow together? Yeah. How you would plant them? I'll I'll start with part of the um, Iroquois cultural community's um, origin story. Um, and that'll sort of explain Ooh, excellent. the the cultural history around the three sisters, and then we can get into specifics of agriculture. Okay? Does that sound good? Don't. Excellent. Let's go. So, um, at the, the beginning of 
the earth, right? Uh, the creator had made the oceans and had put all of the animals there, like all the animals existed and stuff. And um, from this hole in the sky fell a woman and she's known as Sky Woman. And she fell to the earth and she had in her hair and in her hands, she was holding seeds that she had taken from the heavens, right? And so she's, like, dropped to right. to the earth, essentially, though it was just, like, water. And so she's, like, in the water and the animals come and are holding her up and they're, like, we need somewhere for you to live because, like, clearly you don't live in the water. And um, this is where you get the story of, like... She, you know, rests on the turtle's back, and then all the different animals are trying to dive oh. down to get earth from the bottom of the ocean, and none of them can get deep enough. And then um, its otter is able to get all the way down, um, but that otter ends up dying and floating to the top, and in his little hand he has um the the earth and from that earth they're able to make the like land that we live on on top of the turtle's back and sky woman then populates it with all the plants from the seeds that she had brought in her hair and um in her hands and um that's why like north america is called turtle island um and so like yeah right. so sky woman and sky woman it ends up having she like as the story unfolds, you find out that she was pregnant when she fell, and um, she has children, and one of those children is her daughter, and her daughter ends up, you know, through a series of events, ends up dying, and they bury the daughter in the earth, and from her, um, from her, from her chest grows the grows corn. And from her hands, I believe it is, grows the beans, and from her feet grow squash and tobacco. And so these are the sacred plants that, like, were gifted by Sky Woman's daughter becomes, like, you know, the mother nature. So she's the, the mother of humanity and, like, right. who feeds all of the, the creatures. And these are her gifts to them. Um, and so these are like very specific plants that sustain communities. And the reason that these plants are like so great um, is because if you look at most early agricultural societies, um, they're developed around a cereal grain and a type of legume. Um, and that's because with these combination of plants, um, you can get the complete protein profile that humans need to live so in north america that's um maize or corn and then like beans normally some type of like green bean or string bean that you eat dried and right so if you eat just corn or just it really any just cereal grain it doesn't have enough vitamins um it doesn't have there's a couple of compounds of proteins that it doesn't have. Uh, corn is 
doesn't have any i think it's niacin you become if you eat just corn you become iodine yeah. deficient and it can cause like psychosis and all of these sorts of things um that you need to for your body to really be able to process all the proteins um if you add in mm-hmm. legumes then that completes the protein profile and then if you add a squash that uh to the diet right that provides like vitamin a um and a few other other vitamins or it it aids in the production of these vitamins which are kind of like hormones in the human body um and you get a complete nutritional basis like obviously you want to have other types of foods in there as well but like this can be the full base for a complete diet that'll keep a full society like alive um so that that really became these three plants of like different types of species, so like varying squashes depending on region, different strains of corn, different types of bean depending on where in North or South America you are. But it's basically like those are the three staple crops for all of the Americas. In some places, like right, you get potatoes as well, but it's not super important right now. <laughs> right. Um, there's variations on the theme, yeah. You know. And so then, what what you do for the three sisters polyculture? So instead of growing all of these things in monocultures like we think of now, where you till a field, you plant the crop, and it's all those crops in rows, what you would do is you would plant the in right. Or, in the spring, you would start planting the corn, and the corn would grow up. And then around the corn, mm-hmm. in a mound, you would plant the beans. And then once the corn has sprouted, the beans will sprout and climb up the corn. And then later in the summer, you plant oh. the squash, and the squash grows along the bottom with these big, big leaves. Mm-hmm. And so what you've done then is the these plants all work together in a few different ways to essentially like protect each other from pests also to aid each other in growing so like beans have to grow up something so that they can get light so the squash becomes mm-hmm. like your steak that you would normally grow the beans on or sorry your your corn becomes the steak um the squash acts as a natural mm-hmm. like pest repellent um, it also like protects the drainage and ground by having like these big leaves. It keeps things from getting too close to the corn or being able to climb up the corn and like eat it. Um, so it the the plants themselves end up doing a lot of work that like in a traditional monoculture type of growing, like humans would have to do. Hmm. The other thing is that by growing them together, each of the foods actually becomes more nutritionally complete. And this is because of how the plant physiology actually works, which is really fascinating. Um, So they did this study. um, It's called Food Yields and Nutrient Analyses of the Three Sisters, a Haudenosaunee Cropping System. If you want to look at this study. (laughs) Um, And they compared growing in this like traditional uh, ethnobotany knowledge kind of way. They compared growing it that way, the Three Sisters method, to growing each of them in monocultures. And what happens is growing these plants in the Three Sisters, technically you get a slightly smaller yield of beans and a slightly smaller yield of squash, but the corn production isn't changed, and the corn is the main part of the diet. 
So corn production isn't affected, you know, either in mm-hmm. uh, Three Sisters or in monoculture. Um, and e- even though you're getting less like actual physical beans and squash, they actually ha- are more nutrient dense and the corn is more nutrient dense. So you're actually getting more sugars and proteins and actual fuel from the food than if it was grown in monocultures which is excellent because you can actually oh, like wow. then feed more people with less food um and uh, the over yeah and it's also i i assume like i'm sure it, that would also make it easier to mm-hmm. store right like you don't have to s- expend so much space like storing right dried beans like tons and tons of dried beans that are like nutritionally less complete as compared to storing like a smaller amount of beans for the winter but like they're all super nutrient yeah so they provide more calories more proteins all of these things that you really need um in yeah more efficient packaging essentially and the reason that it's like that is because yeah and it also requires a lot less work from a person so one of the things that's like a big issue with cereal crops like wheat or corn or buckwheat, rye, any of these kind of crops like that, is that they're really nitrogen depleting. And so that's why in Europe you get mm-hmm. that like three field system where you like wrote the crop rotation yeah. where like one year the field is fallow and then you pour it, put the like wheat in it and then you move into like a legume into it. And the reason that you do that is because the the cereal grains deplete, they use a lot of nitrogen. And so they deplete the nitrogen from the soil. And then beans actually pull it out from the atmosphere and pump it back into the soil. So the legumes um, redistribute nitrogen back into the soil. It's like a waste product of legumes. Right. Um, and so when you're growing the uh all of these plants together you're you don't have you can use a lot smaller space to produce more food so you're you're also producing a lot more food per hectare um you can feed more people per Mm -hmm. like less amount of land because you don't have to have massive fields and you don't have to rotate them because you're not depleting the soil um you also don't have to till this is a no-till method so you don't have to turn up the ground because when you plant the corn the corn's going to do the initial work the beans are then going to bring nutrients and their roots go really deep and spread out so like the the root structures of the plants are going to do the work that tilling would normally do and then they're protected you don't have to do like the field maintenance because they're protected by the squash so you don't have to you know like build up row mounds and like cover your plants or anything like you don't the work is being done by the interaction between the plants um so that's one of the things that like was really difficult for Europeans to understand when they were introduced <laughs> to this idea is that like it's by having this relationship with the actual organisms and understanding how the organisms work, obviously not like understanding like, oh, well, it's moving, you know, in non-visible yeah. nitrogen back into the soil, but like understanding that like 
these <laughs> things work together and like yeah. having a, a spiritual relationship where you, the understanding is that these are three sisters who support each other and you know help move each other through the seasons that um they're right. able to allow the plant to work for them right and so what you have in this system yeah. of agriculture is more like a community concept with the plants so by like having uh having this understanding so what they're what you're really doing in that type of culture then is the human element is there to foster and protect and create the best possible environment for this community of organisms to grow in their own way so the idea there right is that like the humans have to do enough work to support the three sisters. And so it's this very communal idea of if if we support these sisters, if we support this family, then the the that family will then support us. We're all part of it together. Um and there was like a a type of, you know, if we're gonna talk about like leaving fields fallow or things like that, um the Iroquois were technically nomadic. You would move every 10 or so years. So you would grow crops in different places around the longhouses. And then the longhouses themselves would move um, about 10 to 20 miles away every few years. Um, and this was so that you could change hunting grounds, right? So you would live somewhere where you had cleared right. fields and then also had forest. And so this way, right, you're not creating a place where, like, this will strictly be fields forever. The forest can, like, retake that space where you were growing agricultural crops. Um, and then you can clear a different space. And that, one, helps control the forest so that uh, there it's not so dense and overgrown so that large game animals can move through the forest more easily. Um, this was something that was like really astounding to Europeans when they showed up um, on the East Coast to these massive forests, but they, they said that they were open and clear like parks, right? That you could ride your horse through the forest, yeah. which was not something, you know, when you think of like the Black Forest in Germany, like you can't like ride your horse through it. It's like overgrown, dense, dark, scary place. But forest in yes you know early contact north america was not like this terrifying place you could see deer you know and they were like coming and this was because of the system of movement that um iroquois and algonquin communities really fostered where you would grow the three sisters in a specific place um you would have your longhouses set up you would hunt in this specific part of the forest and then after a while the community would move the longhouses to another place the forest would be able to this is feeling a little scattered, um, but like, yeah, so you would, the it's this system of management that doesn't, from a European view, look like a human system of management, but it really is. And it's fascinating. So like, as people have started doing more studies about, you know, ethnobotany and things like this, this is where I want to sort of take this whole conversation is toward how... Um, in now like a colonial North America, right, with like 
Canada and the U.S. as like existing right. states and cultures, uh, how we think about indigenous scientific knowledge. And that sort of harkens yeah. back to like what I was saying before when we were talking about like um, maple syrup and the story about like, well, how did you guys figure out how to do this? And it's like, squirrel taught us. And they're like, ah, these crazy people. And it's like, no, like it's it's a system <laughs> of observation that has existed for so long that the language of like what in the West we think of as like the scientific method, you know, this enlightenment principle this enlightenment system of like notating the observations doesn't necessarily apply it's more of like a generational collection of knowledge that is passed down in specific and often metaphorical ways but comes to the same kind of result right you have this deep intimate relationship with the land and there's a great quote from um Robin Wall Kimmerer, who I quoted also in that uh, part as way in that uh, episode as well. Sorry, my brain. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Where she says, traditional ecological knowledge is not unique to Native American culture, but exists all over the world, independent of ethnicity. It is born of a long intimacy and attentiveness to a homeland and can arise wherever people are materially and spiritually integrated with their landscape. Um, and then she says that uh, in these traditional ecological knowledge methods, the observers tend to be the resource users themselves. For example, hunters, fishers, and gatherers whose harvesting success is inextricably linked to the quality and reliability of their ecological observations. In contrast, scientific observations made by a small group of professionals tend to be quantitative and often represent synchronic data or simultaneous observations from a wide range of sites, which frequently lack long-term perspective. So one of the things that... Um, like ethnobotanists and conservators are realizing is that the traditional ecological knowledge, like TEK is how uh, Kammerer refers to it, Dr. Kammerer, um, is often working from a data set that is centuries long, which the Western scientific model can't replicate and is often like so you yeah. get these different so like for the the tek the traditional ecological knowledge you have maybe a much smaller land mass that you're working with right just the northeast you know just like this quebec new york region but it's thousands of years of information about it whereas like if you're doing a scientific model you might be looking at like how mosquitoes are operating up and down the whole east coast and but only for like 15 years so the the understanding of how this traditional knowledge really works and how um like utilizing history and um ethnography studies to really understand how people orally transmit knowledge and how people culturally transmit knowledge and knowledge that is scientific and has like scientific observable basis 
um, can be really, really important to how we're going to approach conservation and, you know, facing the impending climate disaster that's coming. Um, right. Because there's, there's centuries of knowledge that is oftentimes more expansive and understands more than West, the Western scientific model necessarily gives it credit for. So this this uh, right survey that I referenced earlier, right? People, the peoples of North America and South America have been using this three sisters model for thousands of years. Um, yeah, as each of these plants sort of made it across North America, it was integrated into this polyculture, and. So, like, I think it was corn was first, and then beans, and then squash, and it, like, sort of, they started planting them together. And it created this, you know, new system of agriculture. And it's existed for thousands of years and has been perfected over thousands of years of trial and error and, and right. like, minute observation that has been documented in these cultural references that are really fascinating historical sources. So that story that I told earlier about Sky Woman all of the, those parts have specific meanings and cultural context. And by really doing some sort of like ethno history, you can start to understand how that has been transmitting so many different types of knowledge, not just values, but yeah, you know, like your values, the, the human relationship with the land conservation, um, but also like basic scientific things like your plants will grow better if and then we find later you know when we use a scientific model to look at you know over the course of years how corn production yields in a monoculture versus in mm -hmm. the three sisters how like the protein analysis and actual nutrients from the food is produced in these like comparative ways you really see that like Yes. This is supported by the Western scientific method as well. And so Kimura is doing this really amazing work where she's are talking about um, how to integrate traditional ecological knowledge into modern um, mm -hmm. like botany education and into specifically conservation education because a majority of our you know so-called wild lands in north america is controlled by indigenous communities um it's much significantly more than national parks in both um the u.s and canada and they're often more effective at maintaining um biological diversity than in the national parks um because in in these systems like national parks or public lands the idea it's approached with this very like western idea of hu humans are not part of the natural world and so we don't take into account how humanity has been shaping these ecosystems for generations and so like we try to remove people from the system and that doesn't necessarily like create the best benefits um there's a really cool study that was done by one of Kimmerer's students that she references in Braiding Sweetgrass, where sweetgrass actually, in places where it is endangered, will grow better and produce more if there is um, 
like specific and protected harvesting of the sweet grass because it needs to be sort of culled. And so it's grown, it, it has existed, you know, for enough generations of sweet grass that it's dependent on this human relationship of being harvested for ritual use. And so you have to harvest it in a, in a, sustainable way but that actually then produces more sweet grass um which is really vital to uh, a lot of marshland ecosystems um it's also being used in uh indigenous communities to re-establish uh what sociologists are calling food sovereignty so throughout history right so we come to look at North America, usually in this Western perspective of Euro Western perspective of like historical analysis, looking at North America starts when Europeans show up. And Europeans show up and start using a lot of the information, like this Three Sisters planting method, for a while until they get enough of a basis of colonialism to really take over the land and the history that we get shortly after that is of you know horrifying genocide and control and one of the ways i've spoken about this before i think when we were talking about the um private property one of the ways of controlling um indigenous populations was to remove them from the land that they have this relationship that we were talking about, this TEK relationship, the traditional ecological knowledge relationship with the land. You remove people from that space and then they can no longer provide food for themselves and they become food insecure. And then the U S government starts providing food. So this was the model that the U S used in removal. Um, it was used in some ways in Canada as well, but um, Canada relied much more heavily on the uh, residential school system that also got that idea from the US. Bad ideas come from the US a lot, it seems. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> Canada, we... We we took we do take those ideas and run yeah, with it. Yeah, really though. did take. You it. know, we can't. Yeah, we can't put all the blame on on the U.S. We we do our no, fair share yeah. too. Canada definitely looked at them and was like, "That's a great idea." But yeah, I mean, um, this is very one sec. But yeah, I mean, it's like you know, a lot of the time when people talk about the means of production, right? They're thinking of like a factory, but like food and land yeah, is the same food. thing like your ability to grow and produce your own food is a way that you know people in the last few hundred years have had that means of sustaining themselves yeah. taken away yeah and so i was reading this really fascinating article about kanakahaka which is the um mohawk uh controlled land just south of montreal so on the border with um new york um and they were doing a a survey of like food knowledge in Kanakahaka. And one of the things that has become like a really serious problem and has been for generations, um, especially um, on reservation land, is that with the residential school system and with the displacement of peoples, the cultural knowledge that you know, was the basis for this scientific knowledge of how to provide food for 
your whole community reliably and sustainably over generations is lost when you take people from the land that they have that relationship with, when you remove them from plants and animals that they're familiar with, that breaks that cultural relationship. But also the residential schools, by removing children from their elders and removing them from their language and removing them from the specificity of those stories like the Sky Woman and Sky Woman's Daughter, when you remove the cultural context for understanding Sky Woman's Daughter, you can lose the cultural context for understanding how to have a relationship with the three sisters. And by doing that, you can create one you can can control how people relate to their identity right and like make a generation of people who are traumatized by horrifying uh state sanctioned school violence but also through that violence create shame around an inherited identity so that then they don't want to teach their children what little they do remember and it allows then a state to control a people and prevent them from providing for themselves. So even though in Kanakahaka it is still within the traditional landscape, the cultural landscape has been removed. And so there is severe food insecurity um, among a lot of Haudenosaunee people, specifically in Kanakaka, also in Onondaga. Onondaga has its own history of severe pollution as well. But one of the things that um, sociologists and ethnobotanists are doing that I think is really fascinating is reintroducing, with the assistance of elders, this spiritual culture around Sky Woman and the three sisters that is then correlated into plant knowledge. Um, and that can help allow a community to again provide for itself. So it's no longer dependent on, you know, international food sources or like food stamps, government assistance in sorry in the way that has been like really seriously detrimental. Um, and this gives back power to those communities over the land on which they live and also over the food that they eat. And by having that power of production, like you said before, <laughs> yeah, it's literally like taking back the means of production. Um, that gives back power that had been taken by a, a state violence, right? So if you are not dependent for survival upon that like state, that oppressive state, you can make free choices again. Um, and so like this food sovereignty um, and understanding like traditional ecological knowledge is really, really important to working towards like an equitable use like a bunch of buzzwords and <laughs> working towards like an equitable future um in North America, right? For marginalized communities of all sorts. And for, to do what I think uh Dr. Kimmerer really eloquently talks about in Braiding Sweetgrass is that by understanding traditional ecological knowledge through a western model you can also allow 
more people to become indigenous to the land, right? You don't, obviously not in like a, I'm going to be Iroquois now, but like by fostering this community of relationship with the land on which you live, as opposed to imposing the ideas from another place onto the land that like clearly does not, isn't sustainable or we wouldn't be, you know, freezing to death in Texas. <laughs> but like, uh, like by, by understanding and, and fostering like the creation of, of a, a new type of culture, right? By making the the dominant culture in relationship with the land to which it exists on now, like you can become indigenous to a space, right? People have been moving since people have existed. And so like, we can't just be like, ha, if you're not from this place from before like 1600 like you don't get to live here anymore like that is just not feasible people have been moving forever and always and indigenous people have been moving forever and always across north america like that is just how history and humans work yeah i mean also just the idea of trying to like ship everyone <laughs> in the americas back like do like an ancestry.com to figure out like which state is now responsible for you but then i guess anyone who had immigrated even within europe they need to be shifted yeah, around it's, again it's like we're all gonna go one, back like, not to 1491 works, not how human movement works like that's just but what we can do is by by acknowledging that these systems of knowledge exist in parallel to each other and not in a hierarchy uh yeah we can like re-examine our position our relationship with plants our relationship with the land on which we live um how we want to go about controlling that land how we want our states to function and be formed and really give a lot more power back to the people who have to interact with the land the people who have to feed themselves from the land the people who are working you know just in general like workers uh who are like don't have like currently the the means of capital to like not have to care about their relationship to a lot of things where they can just be like well i'll just move to mars yeah <laughs> or it's cold in texas so i'll just go hang out in cancun for I'll a while cancun. <laughs> we record these in advance yeah, so like so i don't know a... that joke might be out of date two weeks from now but also <laughs> it mm, don't I'm, care i'm gonna be it will still be relevant yeah, i'm still gonna be talking about this <laughs> forever <laughs> go to cancun and blame yeah, your 10 so, year and old jesus <laughs> well, my daughters wanted to go okay Such a man thing okay, to do Ted. Like, I, it wasn't my fault it, <laughs> it was, was my 10 year old girl <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway your 10 year old cannot book a flight to cancun yeah anyway but yeah Just you know what legally, you're right every day is a good day to <laughs> roast ted cruz so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so that's sort of what I wanted to, like, when we were looking at the Three Sisters, like, obviously I don't have the cultural knowledge to really, really speak to the, like, spirituality of yeah. this story. Uh, but I do want to talk about the importance of 
reevaluating our systems of knowledge and the specific hierarchies that in like your Western cultures, we tend to put on enlightenment ideas. Yes. Um, which like I'm all for the scientific method. I think it's super, super valid, yeah. but there are other systems of knowledge from other cultures that when even put to the scientific method, turn out like that knowledge turns out to have been right. So like maybe we should Yeah, and the people know, from the Enlightenment also got a lot of stuff wrong. So you know, I They definitely I did. I don't think we should just hold them up as like <laughs> I definitely don't have a wandering uterus. Yeah. So, also, you know, all of quote unquote race science. Um, just oh uh, yeah, that's you a know, big one too. They got a lot, even like outside of like outright like just racism. They got a lot of other stuff wrong, like <laughs> just like plant and animal classification. Because if you're just classifying things by their morphology, you're not you know, like, taking into account yeah. other aspects of it. So now that that's actually, like, a fun a, a fun thing to untangle now, where it's like, oh, wait, this animal and this animal look really similar, but if we actually, like, look at their structure and, you know, <laughs> physiology and, you know, obviously now we have DNA testing and stuff, it's like, oh, they're mm -hmm. actually super, super not related. Yeah. But yeah, that's I, yeah, I digress. It's... Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there and there are things that like you know, just because you can again, yeah, the 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 context matters uh with the scientific method. Like how much information you're putting in and observing is going to like that's that's what's going to create the results that you get. So like if you're not putting in all of the information that you might need, right? If you're not putting in thousands of generations of knowledge about how corn and beans and squash relate to each other, you might not realize that planting them together creates more nutritious food than planting them in monocultures uh, because, you know, quantifiably it might look like you have more food, but that food's not actually going to feed any more people because you have to eat twice as much of it. Yep. So, like, there's, there's things like that that, like, the scientific method uh, will take just as long to figure out as as traditional knowledge systems not and again not to be like science is garbage i love science i think we should all definitely believe scientists it's just yes yes there are different types of scientists uh indigenous science is real as well yeah i mean <laughs> i think it, it like yeah exactly like obviously believe science support scientists climate change is real get the vaccine <laughs> if you can like yeah but when when we are talking about kind of these broader issues, I think it is important to say we shouldn't, you know, overvalue one system of knowledge, like necessarily yeah, over exactly. another, because right, like, like, there's going to be different strengths and weaknesses of different systems and like different different spots that you're not going to pick up. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about this now, uh, because... I mean, it doesn't seem like it literally anywhere on this continent right now, but we are getting towards spring, which means that, like, you know, preparing for planting in different places would be happening. Um, so in the next few episodes, we're going to be talking in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about 
um, springtime foraging again. So we're going back to our foraging theme. We're going to be talking about Eastern spring holidays and spring planting. And we will have a guest for that one. Yeah, if if everything pans out, if we can align our schedules. Yes, with if the stars align properly, we should have um, some cool guests in the next couple months and some info coming out about our next season. So stay tuned for that. Watch for updates. Follow us on everywhere. <laughs> yeah, rate and review on iTunes. We really... Really want to hear what you guys think, so please, please, please rate and review us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us. Give, give us a nice rating. Although, I guess if you were going to give us a bad rating, you probably would have left by now, but if, <laughs> if you do think that we only deserve a one-star rating, I mean, what are you doing here? We're the real winners here. We've yeah, took up 50-ish minutes of your life. Time. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it really does help um, when we get feedback anyway i think that'll be that for this week thank you margo for telling us all about the three sisters thank you and thank you to our listeners for listening to me ramble about it thank you for listening to the baba yaga project and as always thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!